Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning and for this time that we're gathered together. Lord, what a beautiful uh, time in worship through song we had this morning, Lord. Uh, I pray that it was a blessing to you. Lord, I pray that you would now take this time, Lord, and that you would prepare all of our hearts to hear what you have already prepared in your word to be heard today, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use me this morning as your uh, mouthpiece uh, and nothing more than that, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, the book of Jude. It's 25 verses. It's an amazing letter, uh, actually. Um, it's written by a guy named Jude. Uh, <laughs> I know, sometimes the Bible is very obvious. Uh, it was written about the same time as the uh, first, second, and third John, you know, right around that same time. And maybe it was written before. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not sure we know that for sure. But what I do love is that this is Jude, and this is Jesus' half-brother. Like, did you know that Jesus had brothers? Uh, you know, in the Bible, it actually talks about in all four Gospels that he had, you know, a mother and brothers. And even in Mark and, and Matthew and Mark, it says sisters also. Um, and in Matthew, especially, and in Mark, you, they actually tell you the names of his brothers. And so, you know, at one point, Jesus was back in his own hometown and he was trying to share with them. And they were having trouble with it because they were like, isn't this Jesus the, the kid that we've known, and, and isn't his father Joseph, and isn't his mother Mary, and aren't his brothers, i sorry, I just blanked, <laughs> aren't his brothers James, Simon, Joseph, and Judas, or Jude, or Judah, it's all three of those, they're all three of the same guy, aren't these his brothers, and in Matthew and Mark it says, and aren't his sisters also here among us, and so by that, those two passages, what do we know? Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters, because you would never call one sister sisters, right? <laughs> so he's got four brothers and two sisters. That's, and, and, and the way Matthew writes it, he says, and aren't his sisters all with us? I mean, that leads me to believe that there were maybe more than two sisters, that maybe there were more than two. That's a lot. But, you know, we can, we can know for sure that there was at least two. So we know that Jesus had four brothers and two sisters, and he was there too. And that means that was a household of seven, seven children. Seven children. Can you imagine what that's like? Tennille can imagine what that's like, Ty. Um, almost Patrick and Liz. Seven children, and they're all living in the same house in the first century, you know, and I'm thinking, man, that was a busy household. I mean, how do you fit seven kids? And they're, these are small houses, you know, they're not these huge houses that even we live in, but there's these little houses, and they've got seven kids, and I'm thinking, how do you get seven kids into one house with two parents? And I'm thinking, Joseph was a carpenter, bunk beds. They have another kid, he adds another bed. Just... <laughs> Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother? Why can't you be more like your older brother, Jesus? <laughs> He's such a good boy. You think Jesus is so perfect. Jesus can do no wrong. Jesus walks on water. <laughs> I wonder if Jesus was thinking, you know what? That, that's a good idea. I'm going to save that one for later. <laughs> But, you know, here's the thing, right? As you get to know Jesus, as you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you actually do start to become more and more like Jesus. It's called sanctification. But I get it. Living in Jesus' shadow, it must have been tough. In fact, you know that, that Jude and James, at least these two, they did not actually believe in who Jesus said he was while he was living. In fact, they didn't believe in Jesus until after he was crucified and risen again. Once they heard that truth, then they believed. If he hadn't risen from the dead, there wouldn't have been any reason to believe. But he did. 
And in doing so, he defeated death and paid for all sin. And when they were told this, they believed. And so did I. And so did many of you. And if you haven't, you must. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, you are just like his brothers were. But once they knew the truth, they believed it and they were saved. So the book of Jude starts right off. Verse 1, Jude, identifying himself. But look how he does it. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now Jude could have said, Jude, half-brother of Jesus. <clears throat> but he doesn't do that. He doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus. He says, I'm the brother of James, the other human being who's flawed and didn't believe in Jesus. I'm the bond servant of Jesus Christ. You see, he doesn't even just say Jesus. He says, I'm the bond servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ means Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one who was sent to be the savior of the world. I'm the servant by choice of him. That's what bond servant is. In case you don't know, bond servant is someone who decided that anything that they had on their own wasn't as good as what they had in the service to their master. So when a servant's time was up being a servant, they could choose and say, okay, I'm going out on my own right now and I'm going to have to provide for myself and take care of myself. Or I could choose to remain a servant by choice to my master because anything he's got to offer me is better than what I could do. And that's what Jude identifies himself as, the one who has chosen to be the servant of my master because anything and everything he has to offer is better than anything I got going. He says, I'm the bond servant. He could have claimed relation to the Messiah by blood, but out of humility, he said, I'm a servant of my master and brother of James. <laughs> then he says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. So who is he writing this to? He's writing it to believers. That's as far as we're going to go. He's, I'm not going to identify a church or anything. He's writing to believers. He says, to those who are called. As I was sitting there and I was thinking about this this week, the Lord just led me to this example of a phone call. The Lord calls, we answer, or we don't. The Lord calls and we answered. The Lord called me and I answered. Many of you, the Lord called and you answered. Maybe some of you have not answered that call yet. But as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about the evolution of the phone call. Let's think about that for a minute. Um, when I was a kid, I had a wall phone in the kitchen of my house. And it had a 47-foot-long cord so that you could answer and talk and go anywhere in the house you wanted, up in the attic. You're in the attic. You're like, where? And it comes to the bathroom door, and it's closed because the person's in there. And, and to make a call, it had a dial. So it was like, two, tick, 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 three, tick, 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 tick. And it took 44 minutes to make, just make the call. But when the phone rang, it would, if you didn't answer it, like that was your choice. Answer it, don't answer it. That was it. The phone would ring. You would answer the phone or you would not answer it. Did you know who was calling? No, you did not. It would just ring. And uh, what happens is if you didn't answer it, it would just ring and ring and ring. There was no end to it, especially if the person on the other end was persistent and they were just like, I, I could let this, I'm going to go all day. I'm just going to let it ring all day until they answer the phone. Or you could answer it, pick it up, and then you would say, hello, and then you're into it with who's ever on the phone, right? Because you, you could be like, oh, sorry, not here, and hang up. That's <laughs> Well, along the way, a little device came out called the answering machine. Now, the answering machine, maybe some of you remember the answering machine. Actually, do you remember like coming home from like a busy day and you'd be like, I gotta check my answering machine, and you'd get there and it'd be like, yes, eight messages, or you'd be like, Nothing. <laughs> Nobody loves me at all. 
So if you weren't there, you got to call your answering machine would answer. And then you have the option of listening to the message and then deciding, do I want to call them back or do I want to pretend like I never got this message? Or what happened as a result of having an answering machine is you would be home and it would ring and you would say, I'm going to let the machine get it because I may not want to talk to that person. And so you would let it ring and then the answering machine would pick up um, and, it, they would, and, and you would hear who it was. And then if you wanted to talk to them, you would pick up the phone and be like, I'm here, I'm here. And they would say, are you screening calls? <laughs> Now, the next thing that came along, caller ID. You remember, do you have, remember caller ID you had a phone on a little screen on your phone and it would say the number and you'd be like, ooh, and we pick that up or you'd be like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> we still have that. You know, it's just, it's just changed over a little bit because now um, we don't really have landlines. That's a funny word for the phone, but landlines. I mean, who has a landline in their house right now? No? Just, just like two, three, 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 like seven is like, I'm never giving up my landline ever. No, it was one of those things. And I remember it was way in the, when, when first you know, cell phones were starting to get good and we, it was kind of one of those things that you were proud of. Like, I don't even have a landline. I don't even have a landline anymore. I said it lots of times. We don't even have a landline. But now you have a cell phone and when a phone call comes in, you could see who's calling, right? Comes up, and a lot of times, I mean, you might even have a picture of that person. So when it calls, it's like ring, or like bleep bleep, or whatever it is, and they're like on your screen, like their picture's on their screen. But what does it say on the screen right there on that call? Accept or decline? Those are your two choices right now. That's, that's the choices that come in. Accept or decline? God is calling. Accept or decline. God called me lots. Called me lots of times. So many times I said decline. But he kept calling. And he keeps calling. And he keeps calling. Because he wants you to accept the call. In 2 Peter 3.9 it says that the Lord does not want anyone to perish but that would all would come to repentance. And so he'll keep calling and he'll keep calling. And he'll keep calling, please, accept the call. He says, those who are called, as a result of accepting that call, you then are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Sanctified means you are set apart and preserved in Jesus Christ. The word preserved means um, kept or watched over, but within the sentence, it means more than that. Um, by adding Jesus, it means, it, essentially it means this, watched over by one who does not leave. That's that whole sentence. So that means that when you accept that call and God sets you apart, you are now watched over by the one who will not leave you, Jesus. That's who he's writing to. He says, Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, Beloved, while I was going to write to you a letter talking about our common faith, something that we have in common, I was compelled to write about something a little bit more important. But I want to land just for a second on this understanding of common salvation. When he says common salvation, he doesn't mean common as in cheap or ordinary. He means shared. The thing that we have in common is our salvation. Look around. Everyone look around. Take a second. All right, good. We're all very different. Some of you are way more different. <laughs> and God uses us in different ways within the church especially. But we are all saved through grace in Jesus. There is not one way to get to heaven for rich people and another way for poor people. 
There isn't one way for, for culturally advanced countries and nations and another way to get to heaven for primitive tribes. There isn't one way for um, Catholics and another way for Baptists or Muslims or Buddhists. There isn't one way for the, I'm basically a good person, and another way for the bad people. There's one way that is common. There is one way. And that way, Jesus said of himself, I'm the way. I'm the way. One way that is common to everyone, and it must be Jesus. Then he says that it was necessary for me to write to you, to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith, he says. The word contend, he uses it very specifically. At that time, it was like a word pulled right out of the gymnasium, the arena. It melt, it melt, meant to strive earnestly to the point of exhaustion, like someone who's running a marathon. And they're running and running and running, and, and they finish, but at the end, they're exhausted, they're spent, they're completely wiped out. And sometimes we, we use that word um, uh, as fight, like fight for the faith. But it's not just fight. The word contend actually means fight with skill and commitment. Fight with skill and commitment for the faith. So oftentimes, if you do, like, if you do a Google search, or even in our video that you saw, there was part of it where these like, guys were like boxing, you know. Um, they use the image of a boxer or a contender um, in this sense to help you understand. Because there's a difference between fighting and fighting with skill and commitment. When I was in high school, this was like years ago, we, uh, it was, it was um, against the rules to fight on, on school grounds. So if, if two people decided that they were going to, you know, fight each other, they had to go off the grounds. But right next door to our school was this plaza, and our school kind of backed up to it. And so there was this ridge that ran along, and then it went down in the back loading dock parking lot of the store. And if people wanted to fight, they would just go off school grounds and then fight right there. And then all of us would get them. They, we'd be like, there's going to be a fight today. Oh, they're going to fight. And it's like, that would start to, like, around the schools. Like, oh, fight, 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 fight. And so we were like, oh, I'm going to go and watch. And so... You know, we would go and we would line the ridge there and uh, we would be like, fight, fight, fight. <laughs> it was really bad. <laughs> this is your pastor. Okay. <sighs> and so um, I don't know if you've ever seen an actual real like street fight. Okay. Not the movies. An actual fight. It looks like this. <laughs> if you've ever seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've not seen it, just go on YouTube this one time and, and, and put in like actual Street Fighter stuff. It's just ugly and flailing around and it's like, you know what, I'm going to throw everything at you. It's not like a Street Fight in a movie that's all very skilled and committed, choreographed. It's, it's perfect. You know, there's, a little, like, like, there's moves and there's ducking and there's sound effects. There's no moves in a Street Fight. <laughs> They just run at each other. And eventually what would happen is that's what they'd be doing. And we're all like, fight, fight. And then a, like a police car would come around and, you know, all of us band people would grab up our instruments and we'd all run away. <laughs> <laughs> See, the imagery of uh, a boxer with a, like um, a contending is so good, actually, because a, a boxer, we call it a fight, but it's not really a fight. It's a contest, right? It, they're contending. They're in there, and boxing is very skilled, and they're committed to what's going on right there. And so this idea that he's using of this, this contend for, or this imagery that keeps getting attached with a, of like a boxer, is actually really good. So if we're going to kind of go along with this analogy of, of the boxer, and we know that we're supposed to contend for the faith, we're supposed to um, fight with skill and commitment, how do we do that in the realm of Christianity. So I'll have, here's a couple of things for you. What does a boxer do to be prepared? Train. That's the first one. He trains. He goes into the gym. He works out. He runs. He builds up endurance. 
right? Do you remember the very first Rocky movie? Like Rocky got beat down because he was sad and out of shape, right? But what was his training? He ran like crazy. He ran, ran. Then he was like punching the beef, you know, and he just ran and he got in shape. He was physically fit, ready for the fight. And that is what we must do. We must work out our spiritual muscles. We must train. How do we do that? That means we get into the word on a regular basis. You work out with the word. One, two, three. My Bible's heavy too, so I'm, it's doing something. That's not what it means. You know, get into the word. Get into church. Get into Bible study. Pray. Train so that you are prepared for the fight. What else does a boxer do when they're getting ready to go into a fight? They spar. Do you know what sparring is? That's when they get with another boxer who's training and they like, like they practice. You know, and I don't box, so that's, you know, this is my best effort. <laughs> <laughs> So they spar, they get with another boxer, and they train each other, right? Sparring in, in, the, in the Christian world is get with other spiritual Christians, get with other people, and have those conversations. Talk about, well, what if, if, well, how would you start the conversation with somebody? What if somebody said, well, I don't really believe in Jesus, or I got my own thing, and what would you say? And this is what I'd say. And you spar with one another so that you're prepared. Now, have you ever actually seen a boxing match? Has anyone ever seen a boxing match? So some of you, right? So one of the things that you notice in a boxing match is you've got like the ref and the two boxers and what else? Their corners and the coaches, right? They've got people in the corners who are there to put down a chair, to give them some water, to refresh, to wipe their brow, apparently to cut their eyes so they can see. I mean, I don't, that doesn't sound good to me. It's like, I gotta cut them. And it was like, they're there to, to encourage them, to refresh them. So as a Christian, number one, we need to be encouraged in our corner. But number two, we need to be an encourager in someone else's corner. So we can be there to help build them up as well. And so that we are able to contend earnestly for the faith with skill and commitment, not just wild <laughs> waving of arms. <laughs> Hurt my back a little on that one. <laughs> <clears throat> but there's more. He says, for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about our common salvation, which is Jesus Christ died for us on the cross to forgive us of our sins. When we accept that, his forgiveness, we're saved. That's the common salvation. Do you know how many times Jesus died on the cross? Once. Once. That's all that was necessary. One time. He doesn't die ever on the cross every Easter. He doesn't happen every single year. We remember it many times. He did it once. And he did it, by the way, look at the next words, for all. He did it for all. He did it once, and that one time was enough for all. Oh, man. Thank you. Jesus is right. So he goes on, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This does not say crept into the church, by the way. It might be implied, but it says that certain men have crept in unnoticed. When I read that, and I see that, John, that Jude is writing to believers, I think he's saying there are certain men who will try to creep into your life unnoticed. And as I was talking to someone this morning, I said, you know what? I'm not even so sure that it just means certain men, but certain things of men will also try to creep in unnoticed to your life and begin to turn you away from what you know, he's going to say what you know is the truth. And gang, it happens incredibly subtly and incrementally. The, the, the coming in unnoticed means subtle influence. Subtle influence. I know that many of us know what subtle influence is. The things that influence you without you really realizing it, they begin to influence how you think. And then those thoughts affect how you act. And it's subtle. 
and we need to guard against it. In fact, one of the verses that the Lord gave me personally this week before I had even written out these notes was Psalm 103, 3 and 4. It says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. That is in my life saying, I will not put any wicked thing before my eyes because it will have subtle influence on my mind and then on my actions. And he is saying that they are going to come in. He's going to spend the rest of this morning talking about just how bad it could be or would be for those who don't notice these subtle influences that are coming and what they're going to drive them towards. He says here that they uh, turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Lewdness is this, um, a sin that is practiced without shame. That's what that word means, lewdness, sin that is practiced without shame. John wrote about this too when we were going through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the idea of those who practice sin. In fact, practice sin is those who say, this action, this thing, this lifestyle that I want to live, the Bible says is sin, but I don't think so. So it's not sin. Just because they deny that it is doesn't mean that it isn't sinful according to God. There are so many things. Listen to me. Here's the most common one that I can think of right now is if you um, are in in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, the Lord says, sinful, that is outside of my plan for you, outside of my plan. But people say, well, you know, but, but God's grace is greater than that. And, you know, he loves me and he'll bless me and he'll, and, and look at what it says that they're making the grace of God into lewdness. By saying, God loves me so much and our love is sincere and we really love each other. If you really love each other, then get married. But to say we can live together and we can be in a sexual relationship together, even if we're not living together, um, and God will bless us anyway because his grace is great. You're making his grace lewdness. You've been influenced by what he's saying here. The things of men coming in and saying the things that are sinful aren't sinful. God says, but they are. And there are consequences. He says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What he's going to do right here, he's going to give us three examples of people who embraced rebellion, departed from God's original plan for them, and then the consequences. So he's talking here in this first one about those that he brought out of the land of Egypt in bondage and brought them out. His plan was this. I'm going to send Moses in. I'm going to take my people out and I'm going to bring them to the promised land. I'm going to promise all of this great stuff and say that I can do it and I'm going to send them in. And that's exactly what he did. If you remember, you could read in Exodus that God sent Moses in and that was like the plagues and the, all kinds of stuff. This is probably not an unfamiliar story to you. But he gets them out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage through, let's be honest, only miraculous ways. Plagues, frogs, fleas, blood, darkness, the Passover, the death of the firstborn. Um, Do you know that it says that uh, it was such a trial for the Egyptians that when they were ready to leave, they were glad It says the Egyptians were like, they were glad that they were leaving. So that when the the Israelites came to them and said, hey, we're going to be leaving, um, but we could use, you know, maybe a pot or a pan. They were like, take it all. Here's all of our gold and armor and, and, and take it, just go. So amazingly, they get to the, the, the Red Sea and there's nowhere to go. And God says, oh, wait, I got an idea. And he splits the thing wide open so three million people can stroll across on dry land while the Egyptian army is being held off by a column of fire, by the way, right out of the sky. I mean, I'm only pointing these things out to you to remind you of the miraculous way that God got them out of Egypt into the promised land. You know, and then he just like floods in the Red Sea, destroys the Egyptian army, by the way, washing all of up their weapons and armor up onto the shore so that the Israelites had something to battle with like the next month. Uh, and, um, and they were there and present for all of this. He gets them literally to the Jordan River 
And he says, over there, oh man, it's going to be so good. There's amazing produce. First of all, we all know how important, like just like huge grapes. In my, I just can't imagine, you know, when you, sometimes you go to the store and you get the really big grapes and they're so good. Right? And he's like, it's even better than that. And they're like, yeah, that does sound great, but... You know, God, I know you used like a plethora of miracles to get us out of Egypt. I'm not so sure about this whole promised land thing. Maybe, it, would it be okay if we sent in spies to check it out? To see if it is as you say, God? Can you imagine saying, God, um, could we just send in spies to see if what you're saying is really true? Well, what would be the purpose of the spies other than that? So God, in his permissive will said, okay. So he sent in 12 spies, and they went in, and they came out, and 10 of them were like, yes, actually, it is as God said. Um, it's an amazing land, and, there, and there's all this beauty and all this produce and, and milk and honey and, and great grazing land, but there's also like armies and giants and fortified cities, and we're like grasshoppers to them, and they'll squash us. And right there in that moment, they're forgetting that God had said, no, I'm going to take you in. And give you that land. And in that moment, they stopped believing God. Well, not all of them. There were two guys that came out, Caleb and, and, and Joshua, who they were like, it's amazing. Come on, let's go. Everyone, come on. Why aren't you going? Because they were afraid. And they were stuck in unbelief. And so because of that, because of their rebellion and their unbelief, the Lord said, now you're going to wander around in the wilderness until everybody over 20 years old is dead. And that's exactly what happened. So Jude says, oh, afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. In fact, what is really true is they chose destruction because they chose unbelief. Now the next one. Verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness and the judgment of the great day. There was a time, and we don't know when it was exactly, that God, while he was creating things, created every angel all at once. Angels. All of them. Done. Then, Lucifer, the worship leader, <laughs> decides that he wants to ascend higher than God. He's like, I, I am the worship leader. I'm pretty good. In fact, I'm sure Lucifer at one point said, I'm awesome. <laughs> he convinces a third of the angels to rebel against God with him, and God casts them all out, bound for hell. Because of rebellion against God and the exaltation of self-opposed authority. Remember, he's, this is Jude. He's using these examples to tell them what these certain men are going to, these certain men or things of men are going to come into your life and try and convince you to also do. Rebel. Fill yourself up with empty religion. Appoint yourself as the authority overall. Meaning, you know what? I don't have to listen to God. I get to make the decisions. I get to decide. I get to decide what's right and wrong. I get to decide whether I'm male or female or neither or both or a cat, by the way. <laughs> That's true. If you've not heard that, there are schools that are setting up litter boxes Um, these are the examples that he is giving. He goes on and he says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to use uh, to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth in examples of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So he uses another example, Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you know that you can go to Sodom and Gomorrah right now and it's like a wasteland. And, you know, and because uh, it was, as you know by the story, completely destroyed by fire by the Lord. But before that, it was a lush, beautiful place to live. We know that because at one point, Abraham and his nephew Lot have, got, have gathered up so many cattle that Abraham says, you know what, Lot, um, the land can't support both of our flocks, so why don't you choose an area, and then I'll go the other way. And Lot looks around, 
and he says, uh, well, this area is the best right here. And he's looking at Sodom and Gomorrah in that area. And so he says, I'm going to go here. And so he goes that way. Now, this is, there's something that you can see in that story is that Lot starts off like outside the area. As time goes on, he gets a little bit closer. And then time goes by, and now he's sitting at the city gate. And time goes on a little further, and he's in the city. He was drawn in like, Lot, come in. Come into the city. Incrementally, subtly, Lot is drawn in to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude points out here that their rebellion, they've left the plan that God originally had for them, and they go after sexual immorality and strange flesh. You know what strange flesh means? I'm going to break it down really simple for you, okay? Strange flesh. Strange in the Greek means one of the same kind, okay? Flesh is a word that is very often used associated with intercourse, What is this saying? Strange flesh is intercourse with one of the same kind. That is what God points to. In addition to sexual immorality, he also points to homosexuality. Again, please, please do not leave today and thinking, man, all they did was bash homosexuality. Another pastor railing against homosexuality. Listen to me, please. Hear my heart. Does God love the homosexual? Yes. Did Jesus die? For the homosexual, yes. Does God turn a blind eye to the sin of homosexuality? He cannot. He cannot. Just as he cannot turn a blind eye to any other sinful thing that he has pointed to in the Bible. But they are all forgivable. They're all forgivable. But how do you know you need to be forgiven if someone doesn't point out to you that this thing that you believe or do is sinful? These are not my opinions, gang. I'm just reading out of the Word of God for you. Likewise, verse 80 says, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignities. Remember he's saying now, now, likewise these dreamers, he's referring back to these, un, these subtle influences, okay? He's speaking back to those again. Likewise, we're in the same manner, these dreamers, these dreamers, it's... <laughs> When you hear the word dreamer, you're like, oh, this is like a starry-eyed person who's kind of just like, ah, I'm like, like not really, like I'm kind of out of it. That's not what this word means. If you were to look this up in Greek, it means um, someone who has a desire that is opposed to God, but who expects God to bless it anyway. That's the word. I mean, it's a very short word for a very long meaning, but that's what it means. Someone who has a desire that is opposed to what God says is right and says, you know what, I expect God to bless it anyway, because I say it's right. I say it's right. These are the people, he said, these are the people, these are the influence that are going to come in to subtly influence them towards saying, you know what, I, I can be my own authority. This is what, it, look at what it says. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. That means they did not receive those who God had sent. Remember that was in John's last uh, second letter, Second John. He was like, uh, no, it was the third John with Diotrephes would not receive the people that John was sending to speak to them in their churches. And he's saying, look, there are going to be those who reject authority. They speak evil. Those people are, you know, he was like, oh, you should come to church with me. It's really great. And they be like, no, it's too judgy. And your pastor this, and he does that. And those other people, and they're, that's what they're doing is they're, they're pushing it back. They're starting to convince you like, oh, maybe it is too judgy. Maybe it is. It's just, I, I'm just reading through the word of God here. Then he says, verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. This is pretty interesting. What's going on here? you got Michael the archangel doing battle with the devil over the body of Moses. Like, no, I'm having the body. No, no, I'm having the body of Moses. Now, you remember in Deuteronomy when Moses died, no man buried him. 
God alone buried Moses. Why? Because God knew that if they knew where the body of Moses was, there'd be a shrine there right now, and people would be going to worship at the shrine of Moses. And God was like, there's no way I'm letting anybody worship the body of Moses. In fact, it seems to indicate that God has some kind of a plan for the body of Moses, that the devil was trying to stop, and that Michael was trying to help keep going. What was that plan? Maybe... It, maybe it was that he wanted Moses to appear in bodily form on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Jesus so that James and John could witness that and Peter. Maybe the devil thought, well, if I could stop that from happening by getting the body of Moses, then there would never be a Mount of Transfiguration, but we know there was. Maybe God wants Moses to, to show up in bodily form in the time of tribulation as one of the witnesses, the two witnesses that will be speaking truth in the city of Jerusalem when it's all over. And maybe the, the devil thinks, well, if I, could just, if I could get a hold of the body of Moses, then I could stop any of that from happening, and then there will be no witnesses in the tribulation time. Here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. But here's the important part. It's not the why that's important. It's the how. It's not why they battled over the body of Moses. It's how they battled over. Look at he, Michael, the archangel, by the way, does battle with the devil. And how does he do battle with him? He calls on the name of the Lord. Calls on the name of the Lord to be his authority and to have power. He doesn't claim power of his own to defeat the devil. He calls on the name of the Lord. Incidentally, there are some religions that believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Here's why he can't be. Because Jesus rebuked the devil in his own authority. Michael called on the name of the Lord in order to rebuke the devil. He did not call on his own power, so Michael and Jesus can't be the same person. I guess they missed that one. <laughs> the thing is, um, I think that Jude is reminding them and us, thankfully, that we don't have the power and authority to rebuke the devil on our own, but we certainly can call on the one who does. In fact, I, one commentator I listened to this week, he said, always be sure to put the Lord in between you and the devil. Do not stand up to the devil on your own. You do not have the power to stand up, but you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you to call upon. That's what Michael did. That's what we should do. But, verse 10, he says, These speak of evil, what they, whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam. And for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So he gives three more examples. Man, Jude knows his Bible, doesn't he? I mean, he's just like pulling examples left and right here. So he says, they have gone in the way of Cain. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, the idea that at some point, Cain and Abel were the, the sons of Adam and Eve. And at some point, the, uh, they, there was a, an offering established that they were required to make. It says, when it came around that time... Abel um, brought a lamb who had been slain. Its blood was slain, a, a lamb of the flock. But Cain brought the first fruits of the field. And what we talked about here is like, oh, that seems really unfair that God didn't accept Cain's offering, but he accepted Abel's. And Because you're assuming that, well, because he was the shepherd and he was a farmer, that was their okay offering. But see, God had established already through Adam that it was the, the death of it and then shed blood of an animal that covered their sin. Remember, they were naked in the garden until they sinned and that God sacrificed an animal for the first time ever and then covered them with it to cover up their nakedness nakedness. From that point on, he establishes uh, the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice to be the offering that was required. And so we see Abel coming with the shed blood of an animal. We see Cain coming with the works of his own hands and saying, why can't the work of my own hands be good enough? And God says, it's not. That's not what I've required of you. And Cain gets really mad. In fact, he gets so mad that when he goes to his brother Abel and they're in the field talking and, and maybe Abel is saying, well, you know, we're supposed to, 
we were supposed to take an animal and cut its throat and bleed out the blood. We know this is what gets instituted later officially. Um, and that's the sacrifice. And Cain gets so mad that it says that it's, he slays his brother. But if you recall, the word slay isn't just hit him with a rock and killed him. The word slay is the same word that they used when they took a knife and they slit the throat of a lamb and bled out its blood. Cain didn't just kill his brother. He said, you want the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice? There you go. In rebellion and rejection of God's original plan and appointing himself as a self-authority or a God unto himself. He says, they have run greedily to the error of Balaam. Greedily to the error of Balaam. You remember this guy Balaam was uh, like a kind of a soothsayer. And Balak who was a, a king of a, the, um, the land that the Israelites were in, had heard and seen how the Israelites were moving through the land and defeating everybody. So he said, this is what I'll do. I'm going to go um, and hire this guy to curse the Israelite army. I'm going to pay him like a ton of silver. And he's going to come and he's going to bless. And so they sent, um, they sent men to Balaam and, and Balaam was like, um, well, let me ask God if it's okay. <laughs> it's like, really? You had to ask? God, is it okay if I go and curse your people? And God said, No. So then the next day he was like, yeah, but they're going to pay me a lot of money. So I'm going to go anyway. And you know the story. He gets on his donkey. He's riding along. And his donkey is the one that can see the, uh, the, the angel with the sword ready to block him. And so the, the donkey starts going this way and starts going that way. And he's pulling him back. He's like, come on, you stupid donkey. And he starts whipping his donkey. And it says that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey was like, why are you whipping me? And Balaam answers back to the donkey as if this has happened all the time. He says, uh, you know what? You're lucky I don't have a sword because I would kill you, he says to his donkey. And uh, anyway, um, Balak, he, he, he gets Balaam up on top of this mountain. And he says, I'm going to pay you a lot of money to curse this army for me so that they can't defeat me. And so Balaam goes, all right. I got this. And he gets up there and he goes, blessings to all of you, house of Israel. And he's like, well, and Balak says, no, curses, not blessings, curses. Come over here. You must not have a good enough view. He takes him to another place, and he does the same thing. He gets up, and he says, okay, I got it, I got it, a curse, a curse. And he says, blessings on you, O house of Israel. He's like, ah, but God will not allow him to curse the house of Israel. Three times he tries it because he really wants the money. This is what he's talking. They greedily ran after the error of Balaam. He really wanted the money, but God would not allow him to curse. So in order to get the money, do you know what Balaam does? He says, you know what, Balak, really all you have to do is send the women from your camp into their camp, and they'll get sucked into sexual immorality and idolatry. Money, please. And that's exactly what happened. Balak sent the women from his camp in, and the Israelites were, were sucked into sexual immorality and idolatry, and God took it out on them for doing that. And, it was, and, and Balaam got paid. Lastly, it says of the rebellion of Korah. Remember, he's talking about this woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, the empty religion and the, the murderous rage, the, the heir of Balaam, the, the seeking after money above all other things, even when you know you're not supposed to do that or be involved in this. And then the rebellion of Korah. Now, this, you may not know this one, but Korah, was a Levite. You can read this in Numbers 16. If you want to go home after church and read through this whole story, it's fascinating. I'm going to summarize it. Korah was a Levite at the time that they were in the wilderness. He was a Levite, and he was uncontent with his position. He thought that he should have more position in ruling the people of Israel. So he starts murmuring to his friends. And he got Dathan, and he got Abram together, and he was like, I don't know why... Moses and Aaron need to be in charge of everything. I mean, we're all holy. Why don't we just, let's get, let's get a big crowd. You know, really what he should have done is gone all by himself to Moses and said, you know, Moses, I'm feeling a little discontent with my position. <laughs> Could we talk about this? And, you know, I think Moses would have been like, here's a toilet brush, go clean the bathrooms. That's what we talked about last week. So what he does instead is he gets those three guys, and then he goes and he gets 250 leaders of the, tr of the people, of the congregation together, and he says, you know what? You guys are all, we're all holy and righteous. We should all be in charge. Let's go and talk to Moses and Aaron about this. And so what they do is they go to Moses and Aaron, and they get the whole assembly of the people behind them. And they stand up to Moses and say, Moses, you take on too much yourself. We're all holy. We should all be in charge. 
And Moses said, Korah, is it not enough that God has chosen you to be one of those who ministers to the tabernacle? But here's what we'll do. You and your 250 friends light pots of incense and stand here, and then we'll ask God who he wants to be an authority over his people. And if you all die of old age, natural causes, then you're right. But if God chooses us to be his authority, the earth will open up and swallow all of you whole and then close back up again. As soon as he says that, the earth opens up, Korah and his families, they all fall in, alive to the pit, it says, and the earth shuts up. Well, all 250 people with the pots of incense just like drop them and start running and scattering all over the place, which you would do too. And God was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, fire, 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 fire. He burns all of them up one by one. And then the people are like, okay, Moses, we're good, we're good. Korah rebelled against the God-given authority, and that is what they're talking about here. These things, these things guard against, he's saying. These subtle influence that come in that make you reject authority, that convince you that what God says is sin is not sin. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop because the rest, there's still so much more. And uh, I've already given you a lot to think about. I've already given you, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to write down something to take with you today, you get, you get your pen out, write down Psalm 101 verses three and four, take it home and read it every single day this week. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I shall not, it shall not cling to me a perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning and for this word that you've given to us, this letter of Jude. What an amazing letter. Lord, it has been such a blessing to me to just dig into this, Lord, and to hear your voice speak to me in my own life, Lord, that I might guard against wickedness, Lord, that I might recognize sin for sin, Lord, and repent of it when I commit it immediately, Lord. Lord, I never want to live in a place of sin. Lord, I know that I'm not perfect and that I do sin, but Lord, thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that brings me to a place of repentance each and every time so I might restore fellowship with you, Lord God. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who does not know you, Lord, as Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus until they heard of his death and resurrection. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who this is the first time that they're hearing it, that he died for their sins and rose from the grave and that they need only to ask for forgiveness of their sins and accept him as their Lord and Savior, that they would do that today. Lord, they wouldn't spend a single another day uh, in, in the deception of this world that they try to get us with. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.